Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. In an increasingly fast-paced world, the ability to learn effectively is the most important skill. Throughout a person's life, they're expected to have several careers, some of which may be unimaginable when they were going to school. Lifelong learning is an essential part of the modern world. But what does lifelong learning really look like? Mostly, people take courses or spend time learning new skills when they need it, either for their current job or to train for the job that they want. In this episode, we will discuss why this model needs to change and how we all need to think about lifelong learning as a constant capacity building. So what does this mean for the individual, educational institutions, and workplace learning? My guest today is a leading expert in developing new types of educational systems to meet the opportunities and challenges of the 21st century. Professor Chris Didi is the Timothy E. Wright Professor in Learning Technologies at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. His research spans emerging technologies for learning, infusing technology in large-scale educational improvement initiatives, developing policies that support educational transformation, and providing leadership in educational innovation. Chris has received many awards for his contributions to the field. To just name a few, in 2017, he was named as one of the top 25 EdTech innovators of the past 25 years by the Consortium for School Networks. And in the same year, he received the Outstanding Contributions to Research in Immersive Learning Award by the American Educational Research Association. In 2011, he was named a fellow of the American Educational Research Association, and Chris was also recognized by Harvard University as an outstanding teacher, something that I was lucky enough to experience firsthand during my master's degree. Chris shares his wealth of knowledge with his students, not only in his very popular classes, but also as a mentor. Personally, having Chris as my supervisor during my master's and working on one of his research projects really paved the way for my own doctoral studies. I'm very happy to be speaking with Chris in this episode about the ideas from his most recent book, The 60-Year Curriculum, New Models for Lifelong Learning in the Digital Economy. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining me today. Well, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm really happy you're doing this podcast series. Thank you. So the discussion about lifelong learning, we've heard about it for quite some time, and people have different ideas of what that really means. But thinking about that concept, you said that we should not be thinking about it as a 60 years of lifelong learning. Rather, we should be focusing on the 60-year curriculum. So can you tell me what the difference is in your definition of lifelong learning? Now, historically, lifelong learning has been episodic and intermittent. So you have a chance for a promotion or you're changing jobs or perhaps you're even changing careers. And so you want some learning. And so you go and grab a slug of learning and have the transition in your life. 
and then you stop. And then when it's time for another transition, you think about getting some learning again. That's episodic and intermittent and it's lifelong only in the sense that it spans across a lot of your life. Right. But in the future, as, as the book discusses, we're facing a very turbulent, disruptive half century in which whether voluntarily or involuntarily, people are going to be faced with a lot of careers, not able to stay in just a single job or a single career because the world is going to be changing so much yes. and so fast. And people will also need to be able to find opportunity in uncertainty and ambiguity. We've all been struggling with the uncertainty and ambiguity caused by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And rightly so. I mean, human beings are not designed to cope with large amounts of disruption all the time. And yet, if that's what we're facing, then we need education and skills and dispositions that can help prepare us for that. So lifelong learning in the future will be more continuous capacity building, regardless of whether you're at a transition point or not, because you know that the next transition may not be something that you plan or can anticipate. And so you wanna be ready by having built up all of these dimensions of your capabilities so that you're prepared to do well in this turbulent future. Right, absolutely, that is huge. And the, the idea of the curriculum being that it's designed, it's not every time you change jobs or you want a different uh, career, then you have these intermittent experiences of learning, but it's, it's designed for a continuum. That's exactly right, Kinga. And in fact, it's designed in a broad way rather than in a narrow way. So if, if I want to train to be a, a lab technician for DNA samples, that's fine, but that's a very, very narrow kind of training. And then if I want to do something else, there's almost nothing that's going to carry over from that kind of training, especially if the something else isn't being just a biological lab technician for for a different thing. Right. In contrast, there are curricula that are quite broad. So uh, when I was growing up, we would talk about what we called the classic liberal arts education that some places still offer, where you deliberately, no matter what you're majoring in, have to take arts courses and social science courses, science and math and history, and develop your knowledge as a as a human being across multiple dimensions. And that curriculum is closer to what we need in terms of the 60 year curriculum, because in a sense, you're not just preparing for the job that you're gonna have next. You want at the same time to get knowledge and skills and personal characteristics that can generalize to the job after that and to the job after that and to the job after that. And that's a different kind of design because now you're not just laser focused on exactly what you're doing day to day in your new role. You're, you're really building some of what, what the classic liberal arts curriculum was designed to build, creativity and initiative and, 
and empathy and ethical reasoning, because those are the kinds of things that are transferable across jobs. Right. And so in a way, you're, there has been criticism of universities preparing students for a specific job and for an economy and not having what is the liberal arts education of preparing for the whole person in terms of knowledge itself and, some, and sometimes very deep knowledge in certain areas. But this is actually bringing all those pieces together because you need all those different. It is. And, and it is ironic that in a sense, universities do either extreme well but they don't do a good job with the middle, which is really where we want to be. Right. So some people who get classic liberal arts education are just unemployable when they leave because they haven't learned anything that has any occupational value. They may have had a wonderful time for four years, but then they're driving a cab or something because they have no skills that correlate to any job description. But at the other end, as you're saying, if you just get that technical training, you, you almost shouldn't bother to come to university. You should just go to a boot camp or something because, because a university is an expensive way of getting something that's really narrow. So what we really need is something in the middle where, where you're deliberately getting some parts of the classic liberal arts education, but that's also deliberately coupled with something that helps you prepare for your first career and that has transferable skills that can carry on over into other occupations that you might have later. So both sides of the university, the narrow side and the broad side, have some changing to do mm -hmm. if we're going to succeed in, in the 60-year curriculum. Absolutely. And this also involves uh, so many different aspects because it involves early childhood education, schooling, universities, workplace, and in order to make the 60-year curriculum happen, they do need to work together and combine and support a design to learning. Absolutely. And in fact, some of the things that the 60-year curriculum advocates can't happen unless there are changes in K-12 education. Right. So for example, um, the Stanford Open Loop University model has the excellent idea of saying that students, instead of declaring a major, should declare a passion. So instead of declaring, gee, I want to be an engineer, gee, I want to be a, a, a physicist, you would say, I really want to make a big difference in the lives of people in global South countries. And then the university would say, well, you, engineering is one way that you can make a difference there, but you're also going to need some to know something about culture and language and you're going to need to know something about um, economics. And so we'll put a program together that's centered around your passion. Well, one thing that K-12 education does not do now, typically, is to let students know what they're passionate about. It doesn't give them the chance to explore and find out. Often when they get to the university, they feel like they're throwing darts at a dartboard to pick a major because they're not even sure what that means. And so if we're gonna be passion-based in the 60-year curriculum, pre-college learning has got to be helping you understand and develop what your passions are, at least at that point in your life. Yes, absolutely. And actually what you wrote up on this topic, saying that we shouldn't even be asking children, what do you wanna be when you grow up? We should be asking, what do you wanna change in the world? And what are you passionate about? So you're saying that from a very early age, we should be talking about that. 
Yes, absolutely. And, and helping students to experiment and articulate. Somehow childhood has become something where, where you're, you're learning to read, you're learning to write, you're learning to take high stakes tests, and you're trying to get into the best college that you can. And none of those things, except reading and writing, are really going to be very useful for you in a life. You should be learning what you care about, what alternative career choices might relate to that, what kinds of knowledge and skills people have who are in those careers, and so on. We shouldn't be waiting until people are freshmen to ask those questions, or, or high school seniors seeing a guidance counselor for the first time. We should be thinking about that in elementary school. That's an important thing to consider for parents and educators. The school model hasn't necessarily gone through a lot of changes, but there's certainly been a lot of uh, work done in the types of models of education that would fit our modern world. And that has been happening for decades with limited success in what was actually implemented in schools. But what you're talking about is, again, a different model of education because it's a very fast-paced world. And this is the model that really would fit the future of where we're going. So what can schools do, schools and universities, what can they do to take a step towards that? Well, I, I, think, I think some of it is understanding that unlike the past, we're not preparing people for the first job as, as if it was gonna be their only job. And so in a sense, our work has to be student-centered. It can't be test-centered. It can't be curriculum-centered or major-centered. It can't be teacher-centered where if you're a teacher that likes to lecture, then that's what the kids get. It, it really has to be personalized and student-centered because each person brings different strengths and preferences and passions and skills to this turbulent half century that mm -hmm. we're going to be entering. And we can't afford to lose that talent just because the educational system isn't willing to accommodate it. Of all the different sectors of society, the one that should be most concerned with the future is the education system, because that's how we have people who can handle as adults, what's coming down the pipeline. And yet education too often is the system that looks the most in the rear view mirror, that has been the most resistant to change from its history. And, and so the, the purpose of the education system and the behavior of the education system at every level is, is really completely out of whack. There's definitely a lot of work that needs to be done. There's a lot of talk about how do we teach critical thinking and do we do projects and um, let children and students follow their, their passion? But that does sometimes get watered down into not really focusing on the pure skills of what is team building? What, how do you have deep knowledge in certain areas so that you can be creative? You can't just be taught creativity without also having some knowledge in that background. As a beginning to a much, much larger project, what is one thing schools can do today to take their first step towards? Well, earlier, Kinga, you, you referred to the, the fact that these are not completely new ideas. Schools have been trying for decades to develop new models, and many of them have made substantial progress on that. 
so it isn't as if we don't have any place to start. We actually probably have solutions already developed to most of what we need, but they're, we don't know about all of them. Yeah. And they're not designed to scale beyond the local environment in which they were implemented. So at the start of the pandemic, I and four faculty from other universities got together and we started an initiative called Silver Lining for Learning. And you can search on Silver Lining for Learning and find our initiative website. We have conversations about the future of learning. Uh, we have at this point 31 episodes that uh, every Saturday we've invited interesting guest experts and learned about something happening in a part of the world, many of them in global South countries where people are doing wonderful things in terms of new educational models. And the theme is silver lining because the pandemic has opened up an opportunity for educational change greater than any that I've seen during my lifetime because it has so disrupted standard education that the dead hand of the past and the compliance mentality of the present have both been weakened. And so you have these wonderful bottom-up innovations that are taking place. And if we just begin to accumulate those and relate them to one another and talk about scale, I think a lot can happen. The book on the 60-year curriculum does that for higher and continuing education, with the exception of the first and the last chapters, which are syntheses. Everything else in the book is models from different universities or continuing education groups that are, that are steps along the pathway toward the 60-year curriculum. And, and so we're learning from one another about which parts of those steps are successful and which parts of those steps are more work and how we can put those steps together. And th there are comparable things that are happening in, in pre-college learning. There are comparable things that are happening in corporate learning. So we certainly don't need to start over, mm -hmm. but we do need to have mechanisms. And your podcast is an example. The Silver Lining for Learning initiative is an example. The books are examples. Listeners will have their own examples of communities that they're part of that are communities of innovation. We all need to start sharing those, putting the pieces together and thinking about scale. Yes, that's very, very important. And you wrote that in the introduction as well, that we need to look, learn from our past. And, uh, and there is a lot to learn from the past because all sorts of different models have been tried, different uh, ways and different also technologies. New technologies are always being changed, often seen as a silver bullet. But really, we, we should look back and learn from so many great things that are happening and have happened to bring it together rather than in terms of technology, jumping on the new bandwagon, on the new tech in as being one example um, and bringing together all the great things that are happening right now in the world. And in terms of schools, I mean, after schools, there's the workplace and workplace learning. Again, the book focuses uh, much more on higher education, but in terms of workplace learning, you have talked about the importance 
of having skills building and having the support of organizations and corporations in this trajectory of 60-year curriculum. So what should workplace learning look like in your opinion? Well, one thing we know for sure about workplace learning is that it's going to be the major source of learning for people for most of their lives because it's very expensive to come back and get another degree or get a one-year certification. And uh, it's, it's really more than most people need. They may want something very specific, like I really want to build up my skills in negotiation. And, and too often what they're offered is, well, get this degree in social science and you'll learn some negotiation as part of that. So one of the characteristics of workplace learning is that it needs to have a smaller grain size. We were looking at things that might take two weeks or four weeks, and then you get some kind of a certification or validation that says that you've mastered that part of it. And, and these can be stackable so that perhaps you master five sub skills and get five validations. And then when you put those all together, there's a sixth one that glues them together and gives you uh, something that's not micro, but, but meso, middle level, below a degree, but above just a small piece of knowledge and skills. And people are, are working in different ways to try to accomplish that. And companies like Credly are doing a good job of helping providers of those skills to, to think them through, to package them, to uh, validate them, and then Credly provides a kind of outside certification that helps employers to trust that this isn't just somebody claiming that their students can do something, but actually there's some evidence and some third party validation behind this. So I think smaller grain sizes, stackable micro credentials, uh, the chance to learn things quickly, and, and maybe above everything else, performance based, because what, what you get from universities and even from continuing education schools is, is largely seat time based. And that isn't necessarily a, a warrant that you can actually do it. It's just a warrant that you learned enough about it as a concept. So moving to more modern assessment technologies that allow performances to be assessed is, is really an important piece of this. Absolutely, and you, you wrote about that in the book as well, that in schools, assessment should be looked at as well, that it's, it has to show real understanding and ability to actually implement understanding. That's definitely a, a big collaboration between organizations and continuing education, be able to work together to provide this ongoing training in a really meaningful way. But as an individual, I mean, this is a huge landscape to try to understand and to foresee how your future should develop. And many people change careers and have several careers, but usually it kind of came by accident almost upon them. And it wasn't a design from the very beginning. 
But with all this in mind, what is something that an individual, of course, they need the support of schools and government and workplaces need to all working together and providing support for individuals. But what should an individual really be considering when they're thinking, okay, yes, I know I should be thinking of myself as skills. I will have multiple careers, but what can they do to design their own 60-year curriculum? Well, I think thinking of yourself as a suite of skills rather than a role is really important. And it's not something that comes naturally to most people because the whole educational system has been set up so that you're thinking of yourself as a role. Right. So let's say that Harvard makes a big mistake and, and I'm out on the street two days from now. If I think of myself as a faculty member, as a role, then I've got to try to go find another faculty job. And those are not easy to do in the pandemic. But if I think of myself as a suite of skills, somebody that's good at explaining complex things to a wide variety of people, somebody that's a good listener and mentor, someone who has a, a good social capital. I know a lot of people, I can pick up the phone, I can connect people together to decision makers. Then there's a lot wider array of possible roles that are open to me. And most people are not very good at understanding what skills they don't have and which skills they do have. So they think if they haven't taken a course on a skill, then they don't know it. But frequently, that's not the case. Frequently, in a life experience, people have developed some very powerful skills. We see this with people in the military who, who may have a leadership role where they're in charge of a very large uh, chunk of military personnel and equipment and yet they don't understand that they have terrific project management skills because of that, and a lot of people skills and a lot of leadership skills. So there are tools now that are emerging that help people to understand their own skill sets. And that would be one thing that an individual can do all on their own that would help them to better understand themselves and, and what they might need. So that, that's certainly one thing. Another thing would be to think about your, your disposition because um, for better or for worse, we're, the pandemic is just the, the tip of the iceberg in terms of disruption and turbulence that people are going to be facing in their lives. We have climate change, we have a, a massive failure to meet the UN sustainability goals, we have a whole bunch of very powerful, but potentially very turbulent technologies coming down the pike. We have artificial intelligence and machine learning changing the nature of work so that you have an AI partner and your job can be de-skilled or upskilled, depending on whether you can complement that AI partner with some skills that are uniquely human. Learning about all those things and starting to think about your dispositions and building up the parts of you that are human to complement the machine are important. And you might say, well, I already do that. But actually, the high stakes tests, the SAT, the GRE, all the things that schools are preparing you for, those are exactly the things that AI does well. We're, we're aiming at the wrong target in terms of 
thinking about the human part of the human machine partnership. And so reorienting your aim is something that you can do as an individual. Mm. And as you said, learning about these new uh, advances in technology and changes that are coming down the pipeline, which of course people are very busy and uh, there's so many other priorities in their lives. However, the number one skill is learning. And, uh, and, and that is the one, the top human skill that will be important in our future um, as a workplace. So it's, it's a good thing to practice at least um, in that regard to have, be aware. But you, you said that there are different resources available to understand yourself as the skills you have and as a set of skills. What are those resources that, that you're referring to? So um, if you use a search engine and, and look for the kind of terms to use are skills visualization, skills inventory, workforce, capabilities. Um, the, the tools keep changing, so I don't have specific recommendations that I can make, but they're, they're the kinds of, of tools that, that, for example, could look at your LinkedIn profile if you have one, or your Facebook profile. They could look at your resume, and, and then they could suggest skills to you based on what they find there that you might never have thought of in terms of what you see yourself as capable of. Because the, the official inventories of skills for jobs are typically 27,000 skills, 30,000 skills, skills that most of us have never really thought about and yet beginning to see ourselves in those terms opens up a lot of creative possibilities. Right. So that's an important thing to keep in mind and keep a lookout for and going through several of those resources to start thinking about skills. And, and, and some of it is, is creativity too. Yeah. One of the reports that I cite in my chapter was done by a British think tank called Nesta. Mm -hmm. It was commissioned by Pearson. And what I liked about the report is it had some little vignettes in it. And it illustrated how any role has to be creative in thinking about how that role may change in the future. So one of the vignettes was about the owner of a diner, a little restaurant in a small town, and the restaurant was doing pretty well. And then some trends began to disrupt the restaurant. One of them was that people in the community were aging. And when people are older, they tend not to go out to eat so much. They more like to eat at home and they have a more limited menu that they're interested in. Another trend was that younger people were tending not to go out so much either because their lives were very busy. They often were eating and working at the same time. So they tried to grab some kind of takeout or fast food. And, and so the restaurant owner thinks and gets creative and modifies her business in two ways. One of them is that the restaurant develops a special menu for older people and a special takeout uh, service for older people so that they can be customers of the restaurant and still part of the restaurant's community, but eat at home. The other is that the restaurant develops theme nights. And you, you see this in some restaurants where they'll have a particular night where they have a guest speaker, they'll have a particular kind of music or they'll have a trivia contest or something. So the people are actually coming as a social event at which they're eating, as opposed to 
just grabbing some food and going back to work. That kind of creativity in taking a standard job that's, that's been the same forever, watching the world change around you and coming up with ways to respond, that's something that all of us need to develop because all of us, no matter what shoes we wear, are going to be experiencing those kinds of challenges. Yes, that is absolutely huge and something that uh, the pandemic has also highlighted, I think, in, in so many ways that people have had to be creative in how they take their holiday to how they're, what kind of work they're going to have next, uh, a whole range of different things. But I think that's a really important thing to highlight, that creativity, when it's often talked about in the school system, we're thinking about being creative and creating something creative. But actually, a, a huge part of, an important part of being creative is taking restrictions and obstacles and finding interesting ways of solving and going around it. So that's a really great example of, of what you just said. And one of the things you said that the biggest obstacle uh, is unlearning in the future. So what, I mean, we've heard about unlearning before, but can you tell me what your thoughts are about unlearning and what we should know? Sure. I mean, un unlearning sounds very odd. Why would you want to unlearn something? But what happens over time is that we develop practices that work for us. So I have a lot of colleagues who are very skilled lecturers, but then the world changes mm -hmm. and the outcomes that are asked for from education change and the technologies that are available to use change and our knowledge about how to help people learn changes. And we realize that students should be learning actively rather than passively, that the professor should be a coach and a mentor rather than somebody who's teaching by telling and learning by listening. That's hard for people to do because their identities are caught up in the old practices. And so it's not just an intellectual change to say, I'm going to move from teaching by telling to learning by doing, or I'm going to move from being a command and control leader to being a a distributed leader. It's, it's a big shift in identity, how you view yourself and how people view you. And so it requires emotional and social support to make that kind of shift. You have to unlearn your old identity and learn a different identity. There's a variety of ways that this is described. Unlearning is not a universal term, but I think it, it nicely captures what the heart of this is. And too often when we ask adults to change, we provide intellectual support so they know what they're supposed to do differently, but we don't provide any of the emotional and social support that they need. And we don't help them find a new identity that they can value that replaces the older identity that they're giving up. And so the changes fail. Absolutely. And it's such a big part of learning. Is it necessarily part of the education structure? And it really should be. And in unlearning, even more so, you need to take the whole person into account in a, to be able to do that. And actually, something that you talked about in the past that I've never heard about before was when you suggested that in the future, there should be career advisors. And of course, we think about career advisor in, in secondary school, there's someone who tells you what kind of career you should look at. But you referred to something very different, something like a financial advisor that takes you through life and helps you navigate 
what is a very, very complex system in terms of knowing what kind of skills you should have, how you should follow your career, what is out there, what is possible. So can you tell me about that concept of having the lifelong career advisor role? Sure. We began by talking about the fact that lifelong learning is going to move from being episodic and intermittent to being continuous, more like a pipeline. And when it's episodic and intermittent, then you don't really need uh, an advisor that is sustained across decades. You just use whoever the advisor is for the brief period of learning to get you through the next transition. But if you really are thinking about capacity building over the decades, you want somebody who's neutral. Mm -hmm. So I have a financial advisor and the financial advisor doesn't work for a bank. They don't work for a stockbroker. They don't work for a mortgage company. In other words, they don't have a vested interest in a particular kind of product that they want me to buy. They're neutral, they listen to what I need, and then they suggest a mixture in which they don't have a self-interest. And in the same way, I think we're going to need roles like that for career advising, because <clears throat> if you work for a university, you're gonna advise the student about what courses they should take from your university. You work for a training group, same story. You work for a MOOC provider, you're going to tell them about MOOCs that they should take. But what you need is somebody who knows all of those things and who can listen to what you need and advise you on it. So this is a new role, and I'm hoping that we'll start to see certifications, training that helps people develop those skills, uh, the opportunity to emerge as a profession, that, because that's going to be important, another important piece of the 60-year curriculum. Absolutely. That's huge. And, and I was also thinking about in that role, career advisor, uh, do you foresee it being also in a way a learning coach in that where they help you learn better and more effectively or work through some of the maybe hindrances that you have in terms of learning, because we will have to be learning all the time. Absolutely, Kinga. And I think it's, it's always, it's easy for us to look at other people and see what they're doing well and poorly and give them advice. None of us are good at doing that for ourselves. Right. None of us are good at looking in the mirror. And so having that outside person that can say, you know, I've, I've watched your pattern of learning courses and you know, you just don't do well in online or you just, you really learn much better from videos and finding something on YouTube than you do from reading the textbook or whatever the pattern is about your learning strengths and preferences and provides that information to you because in a sense, you're too close, you're too close to yourself to see what you need to know about your own learning. Exactly. And, and it always, it surprised me for, for some time now I've been thinking about that because in, in sports, you have a coach, you have a coach who tells you, exactly what you just said, where you can improve what you're actually doing that you're not even realizing. In, in learning and in intellectual type of endeavors, that's very rarely the case. It's very rarely looked at as an individual, what kind of anxieties or fears or hindrances you might have that is actually impacting the way you learn. So, so all of that brought together looks like it's a new career 
path for some someone. Hopefully, that's fantastic. In terms of the the recent months where there has been this emergency online teaching and learning, and uh, and it's switched at such an incredibly rapid rate. I mean, people have certainly, I'm sure, learned a lot. And there's a lot of realizations that have come about in this. But what do you think the impact of this emergency switch will be? And what do you hope we will take away to be able to implement in the future? Well, Kinga, that certainly is what the Silver Lining for Learning initiative is about. The hope that we learn lessons from this forced remote learning that then change the way that we think about teaching and learning rather than just reverting to exactly where we were before the minute that the pandemic recedes. I think that one thing that this may help people to see is that the best kind of learning is hybrid learning. It's not face-to-face only. It's not remote only. It's a mixture of the two. And research has been telling us that for a long time. Uh, And people in remote learning have always believed that it would be great if you could have some face-to-face as well. But people in face-to-face learning have never believed that it would help if you could have some remote as well. And I think as people who never would have tried online learning are now forced to experience it, they're finding that it has some strengths Mm -hmm. that face-to-face learning does not have. They're finding that there are some parts of it that really appeal to them more than what they've experienced face-to-face. And so I hope that we're able to take away a kind of both and approach to thinking about face-to-face and online. Um, I also think that that it's helping institutions to try to understand what business they're in. So where I live is about 90 miles north of uh, Newport, Rhode Island, where there are some wonderful, very lavish mansions that were built about a century ago as part of what Mark Twain called the Gilded Age, where in particular people from the railroad industry who were making incredible amounts of money built these beautiful mansions and had these very lavish lifestyles. But within 20 years, those fortunes were gone and those mansions were in disrepair. And the reason is that those people thought that they were in the railroad business but they were really in the transportation business. Mm. And so when the automobile came along and the airplane came along, they were hammered because they didn't understand what business they were in. I think that many educational organizations today at every level don't understand what business they're in. They think they're in the course business or the degree business or the education business But the business we're in now is the lifelong learning business. And one of the things that the pandemic has done is to show how learning can take place outside of the campus place, outside of the the classroom time, and how integrating learning with life actually can deepen learning in a way that's quite powerful, whether you're in children that's involving your parents or whether you're simply able to make your home and the resources in your home part of the context within which you're learning. So I hope that we come away from this, all of us in education, seeing us more in the lifelong learning business and and therefore better able to think about what that might really mean. 
Yes, that is hugely important. And, uh, and hopefully a lot of us will take away that lesson and, and build much better learning and teaching institutions than we had in the past and build on all the success that, as you said, has been shown around the world in different contexts. Um, and in the past, so many wonderful examples of good learning and teaching. And now we can combine that uh, better in, in different ways. So thank you very much. And before we end, I just wanted to ask you if you have a recommendation or something that inspires you. Your books are very inspiring to read. So in addition to that, what recommendation would you have for someone? Well, I did at the start of the pandemic do something that I'd never done, which is to write some blogs, just a few for things that I really wanted to say. And I will send you to incorporate into the podcast materials links to a couple of those blogs. One of them is about what I tell my children about their future and about how they should think about learning and education. <clears throat> one of them, the first one I wrote is called Necessity is the Father of Transformation. And it gets into the fact that people think that they'll change when they have a lot of resources, but actually that's not what happens. The times when people change is when the they don't have what they need to make the old model work and they're forced to use a new model. And that's a lot of what's happened now. So I think those blogs are short and fun, but they also have links to a lot of resources that are longer. And so skimming the blog posts and following up on the resources that are longer, I think is, is a good thing to do that's less expensive and less uh, time consuming than tackling a whole book. Okay, well, thank you. That's wonderful. I look forward to that. And uh, thank you very, very much for joining me. As always, it's so inspiring. And I always learn so much in our conversation. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. Well, Kinga, thank you. And thank you for having this podcast series and all the work that you do with helping people think about new models. Oh, thank you.